Did anybody try my suggestion during that meditation? Yes. I did. And uh, I, I think that helped. You think it was it reduced the... it was the... a good thing for me to, to, to do. I know sometimes I find it, when I, I just start in, um, sometimes it's hard for me to find my breath. I, I have, I, my sinuses are often kind of congested and there's a tiny air space there. And sometimes it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's difficult to, to feel, perceive much going on there. But uh, it, it, it seemed more accessible to me to pay attention to more parts of my body. Well, good. That's that's really promising. So, if you could continue, try that some more. yeah, try that some more and, and, and give me some more feedback. Yeah. So lately, I have been having trouble concentrating for very long without wandering. Well, this is, uh, you know, when people have uh, what I call monkey mind, you know, where your mind just jumps from one thing to another and it just won't stay, won't even stay still long enough to get lost in thought. <laughs> you know that. Uh, I have always found that uh, just taking the whole, taking body sensations as, a, as, as your meditation when you have monkey mind is really helpful. So uh, uh, that's where I basically use this method previously and found it to really be helpful. But I think it might be useful all any of those other times when you're finding it a little more difficult to to calm the mind and settle the mind. So well that's great. Anybody else try it? Yeah, yeah. I found that I didn't need it for very long this particular sit, but um, even if I meditate right away in the morning, yeah. I'm really agitated. Mm-hmm. Like almost immediately when I when I wake up. So I I'll be curious to try it tomorrow morning and yeah. see if it, uh, yeah, because sometimes when you just jump right in, it's like, wait, I'm not ready, right? There's, yeah. there's that, that, that sort of, like, tangible feeling of, yeah, this, so to sort of let that dissipate first. Yes, and, and you're actually, you know, you're, you're doing the practice. You are directing and sustaining your attention. It's just not in such a constricted way. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Um, can you talk um, a little bit about the the benefit of when you have kind of stopped your monkey mind or when it stopped, that you do bring it to a, a smaller place of focus? Yeah. That was it. Oh. <laughs> I'm just wondering what, what the benefit is of, of having it be such a small area oh. eventually. Okay. You mean the, the question is... Why not use the sensations of the whole body the whole time? Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that is a good question. And uh, there are some people that uh, have suggested that uh, uh, you you don't need to do that. And I find this really difficult to understand because... Um, what we're trying to do is train the mind to the point where it does it, where the, the, the way your attention behaves 
is according to your intentions in the moment, so that you can uh, so that you can practice in a very insightful way. And uh, it's hard for me to see how you can get to that place without going through the intermediate stage, and it is just an intermediate stage, the, the being able to hold your attention at a single point, uh, like the, the sensations around your nose, which really isn't a single point, it's just a manner of speaking. But you see, where we're trying to get to is a place where uh, Basically, all of the different mental processes that are ordinarily trying to do different things and go, go in different ways are all functioning together cohesively towards a single purpose. Now, if you, if you take that single purpose to be, to be continuously aware of the sensations of the breath at the nose, then it's really easy to tell when that's not taking place. Whereas, if you're just you say, okay, I'm going to be aware of sensations in my body. Period. Um, I think, and and I, I I'm very interested in exploring this alternative theory. But I I think what you're going to find is that you never really achieve. Uh, You never come to that place where you can really train your mind to all completely, you know, come together. That uh, it, it's not. You're put it this way: you're not going to have a stable enough reference point to really know whether uh, whether your mind is uh, truly coming home or not. So, uh, in other words, you're not have, not going to have clear enough and accurate enough feedback for your mind to bring itself into that state of unification. So, to me, it seems like that's really the purpose that, uh, that bringing the attention to a relatively circumscribed object serves, is it gives you really clear reference and you can, uh, you, you, you can understand what's happening in your mind. Because as you know already, if you can keep your attention uh, reasonably stably on the breath, this allows you, in sort of the peripheral vision of the mind, to begin to see what's going on in your mind uh, much more clearly than you ordinarily do. So, you know, it's what I have referred to as being able to be aware of the inner landscape of your mind and, and being able to understand the way these different uh, tendencies of your mind conflict with each other and how different desires and aversions arise which are attempting to bring you away from your single point. So it, it gives you that opportunity to, to see what's happening in your mind, to come to understand what's happening in your mind. And in the process, your mind has a, at an unconscious level even the feedback that it needs to to become stable, to become uh, collectively organized. So that's that's what I see as the purpose of once you once you've got your mind reasonably settled down, that you you bring it to a more uh, focused place. But there's nothing special about 
a, a single point of focus, except that it serves a purpose. And so even before we uh, come to a point of strong single-pointedness, which is, happens in the seventh stage of the practice, we'll spend a lot of times in the fifth to the sixth stages using, uh, experiencing the whole body with the breath as a way both to sharpen up the power of our mindful awareness and also to be more successful in so completely ignoring the ongoing thought processes and memories and things like that, that they begin to fade into the background. So um, there's nothing all of that special about single-pointedness except as a tool along the way. But it's a very effective tool. And, of course, once you come to the place where uh, you where the mind does come together, where you do have a unified mind, now you no longer need to uh, confine yourself to a single object at all. Now you can do all of the really more interesting meditation practices. You can do the kind of meditation practices where in order to uh, gain insight, you just simply observe it, the rising and passing away of the different phenomena that present themselves to you in a kind of practice that's called choiceless awareness. Or another way of practicing, once your mind has achieved this kind of unified stability, is, uh, and once again, this is not single-pointed. Instead, what it is, is following the, the, the mind's processes as they occur. The sound occurs, and then there's a feeling, and then there's the recognition of the source of the sound, and that produces its feeling and the mind reacts with either grasping or aversion. And, and you begin to see, you actually can sit there and watch you know, uh, what's called dependent origination, the links of dependent origination. You can, you can watch them at work in your mind. Um, and even what I think is the best of all, most wonderful practice, once you have used single-pointedness enough to have unification in mind, is to just open your awareness up completely so that it, it, it just becomes broad and all-encompassing and then allow whatever objects of consciousness happen to arise, to arise and pass through the field of your awareness without the mind contracting around any one of them at all, without the mind being pulled this way or that, but just in a wide open, expansive awareness. And that's a practice called Mahamudra. So, it's not that there's anything special, ultimately, about uh, using a, a close focus, but it is a really tremendously valuable tool in able to bring your mind to that state of unification where you can do all these other things. And I think I think probably all of you already, to some degree, recognize that because when you have those times when, because you have been practicing to try to bring your attention to rest on, on a single object like the sensations of the breath, there will be that you, you've had those occasions where your mind does settle down, where you do achieve a certain unification of mind, and you feel that great peace that settles over you and that great clarity that opens up. That's the other thing when we talk about the power of mindful awareness. 
if we're thinking of our mind as being many different processes operating simultaneously, the power of your mindful awareness is proportional to how many of those processes are on target with the same task. You know, like uh, experience that you had the other day that you told me about last night. When all of, in, instead of your mind being divided in multitasking in all kinds of different ways, when all comes together and focuses on the present moment and what's happening right now, this is just absolutely incredible clarity and calm that comes with it. So that's what we're after. Other questions? Yes? I was just going to say, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be fast. I was just going to say, I've been, I've been naturally tending towards using the body more recently because um, my mind is, we were talking about this at the break, I've, uh, uh, I've got a, a lot of stress right now, so it's much more difficult during my sits to um, be present to convince myself the value of my, of my practice when I'm sitting and, not, and uh, deciding not to just ruminate on the stuff I've been worrying about for the rest of the 23 and some odd hours of the day. So, and what I, so I've naturally been going back to using the body because you've suggested that before, not so much just depending on what stage you're at, but just in general. Um, uh, and I find, especially the way you're talking about it now, is that when my attention's really kind of scattered, to have several points of connection, um, it does seem that it grabs more of those little scattered parts more regularly, so that it's like, it, it, for, whatever, for whatever reason, that way of thinking about it really makes sense to me. But there is also that feeling, like, I don't have the same kind of reference as when I, the concentration is strong and I'm just using a single point. So it always has a little bit more of a sense of dullness, but at least I'm on task. Yes, right. But um, So it's a worthwhile compromise then. Uh, especially where I'm at now, where the alternative is, is to go into pretty intense gross distraction most of the time. So I found that useful. Yes. Well, it's not much of a compromise, if, you know, because if if the alternative to taking a broader scope of awareness and, and staying on task, if the alternative to that is is trying to be single-pointed and to failing totally, it's, it's not a bad compromise. <laughs> it's actually pretty good. And uh, it really is the principle of, you know, you, you, you practice according to what's happening in your mind at the moment. And whenever you need to, you know, you use little tricks so that, uh, you know, you, you've, you, uh, the, I like to describe it as finessing the situation. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peggy, did you have... Um, well, I have a couple, but um, I don't know, maybe you could talk about this one just a little. I think I've sort of worked it out in my mind, but I'm not sure. It feels like maybe you would be able to say something about it. But um, I, I think this has always been the case with my meditation that I get confused because I'm supposed to be looking at one thing. Uh, that's what focus is, right? You focus on one thing. But the problem with that is that the one thing is constantly changing. <laughs> so, 
And so I feel like I'm slipping on a banana peel all the time because you can't really, I mean, you can't really look at one thing ever because there is no one thing. That's right. And that's a wonderful insight to realize there is no one thing. Well, I don't know if if that's a question or maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. Well, Sorry? Can you summarize or repeat your question for the table? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> Just so you know, I was under anesthesia a few hours ago. But <laughs> so, I can do this. <laughs> Yes, repeat the question. Okay. So, you were saying that when you're trying to be uh, focused on some single thing, that what becomes really apparent is that even that thing is constantly changing. That that uh, you, you said it's like trying to stand on a banana peel that's always slipping out from under you. Now, and you wanted me to talk to about that a little bit. Um, a little bit of clarification here, because what you said, you could have been meaning more than one thing by what you said, and I'm not sure if I'm understanding you correctly, but... If you are practicing using the uh, sensations of the breath as your meditation object, is that correct? And then are you speaking of a situation in which you are indeed succeeding in not having your mind go to random thoughts and daydreams and memories? But at the same time, you recognize that that these sensations of your breath, it's not, it's not one thing. It's not like you were looking at a rock and the rock was one stable thing. It's constantly changing and uh, it's changing in several different dimensions that uh, the sensations that make up your breath, uh, there's many of them. And sometimes you're seeing some parts of them and not others and and on the next breath it may be different sensations that register really clearly and not others and that unless you're at a really focused and fairly advanced stage in your practice sensations of the breath don't come by themselves they come with all these thoughts and recognitions that even if you're completely with the breath it's uh, concepts and thoughts uh, not necessarily verbal thoughts, but, but thought-like formations about these sensations and about the breath that's happening at the same time. So, And sometimes there's more of the mental and conceptual element, and sometimes there might be more of the sensation there. Is that, would that be an example of how it's... Yeah. 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 
Okay. The conceptual part's almost like a memory because yeah. it, it has to happen after the original uh, input of, of um, sensation. I mean. It, it comes distinctly afterwards, yes. There's a sensation there. Actually, the sensation's gone by the time the concept gets there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost like your mind can't stop wandering no matter what. I mean, even when you're on the breath, your mind is still taking in a lot of stuff besides yeah. the breath. Yeah. I'm not sure that has anything to do with my question. <laughs> I don't know what my question is. I think what happens is my mind starts to give up and let go, and I get this bigger picture. But I'm, I feel like at that point I've, I've given up. You know, maybe I, maybe I should be trying harder. <laughs> no, but you know, like you once said, you could make twelve observations about the in breath, and you know, it's sort of like, well. Oh, when my mind gives up and I just sort of let it happen, I certainly can't be asking what the temperature is and how fast it is. And, um, I, you know, I don't even know 12 things to ask about. <laughs> but, um, you know, I can think about, well, what colors is it reminding me of? Or uh, does it look like a flame in my mind right now? Or, uh, I don't even know what my question is. That, that's all right. The, We'll figure out what your question is by the time we answer it, I guess. <laughs> but but uh, the important thing is that, that we're that, that we're both clearly stating what it was you were referring to about how it's always changing. But there's there's so much there. Well, it's frustrating because okay because I don't know how to look at it. Now there's a question of the frustrating. Why, why, why would this be frustrating? Because you don't know how to look like. That's because you're starting from the point of view that there, there must be some right way to look at it. And actually you're look, you are looking at it in the right way. You are, instead of your mind going to, in, in, in the space of, whatever, say in the space of 10 minutes, instead of your mind going to all kinds of different things like planning dinner tomorrow and what to buy so-and-so for Christmas present and everything else, you know, and remembering some, uh, something that you forgot to do, it doesn't, you know, all that other kind of stuff. In the space of the 10 minutes, you're looking at, okay, here I am in the here and now trying to notice one relatively simple thing of all of the different things that are going on in this present moment that just the breath which it seems like should be so simple but when I look at it it's not that's doing the right thing that's that's meditating you you have succeeded in bringing your mind to enough of a focus that you can start to see beyond the expectation that oh this is going to be the, a fairly simple, straightforward thing that, and there must be some right way to do it, and once I sit down and pay attention, the right thing to do will be obvious, and instead you discover, wow, there's just nothing but flux and change here, and there's mental and there's physical, and there's just really nothing in here to grab onto. That's insight. Because by extension, if that's true of what's going on 
with your breath in the moment. And if that's true of the dynamic processes that are taking place in your mind while trying to do such a simple task, essentially, this is what's going on all of the time, everywhere. Right? <laughs> and and rightly so, rightly so, because we want a nice, stable, dependable, reliable world that we can figure out how we're supposed to interact with, so that it, you know, so so that everything goes just right. And we've been trying to find that all of our lives. And we may have been feeling rather badly about ourselves because we never quite were able to get it all together. But if you think about it in the right way, what you've just discovered could give you a great sense of relief. At least it's not your fault. (laughs) It's the way things really are at the root. Is there an inherent difference in in the way men and women think that gets expressed in how they experience their meditation? Um, what I what came to me was that women have a much greater ability to multitask as a group than men do as a group, yeah. and they can pay attention to several things simultaneously. Um, my blessing is that I don't do that. I can focus on one specific thing. My curse is that I can focus on one specific thing. Right. Yeah. Well, in general and as a, as a group, yeah, there are these kinds of differences between men and women. You know, as you say, that women are much better at multitasking. And men seem to have more of a predisposition to get, uh, you might say, obsessively involved in the task at hand. To monotask, yes. In general. But of course we have to recognize, too, that these are these are not absolutes. That there, are, there, there are some men that are extremely good at multitasking and some women that aren't. And there are some women who are uh, who tend to be very highly focused and shut everything else out and, and uh, some men who could do that no matter how much they tried. But the, the labels men and women don't make any difference. Really what it is is just that uh, any given brain is going to function you know, more in one way as compared to another that functions more in another way. And, uh, and that is partly a reflection of the, the fact that uh, uh, there are a, a multitude of different processes that make us up. But it's also quite trainable that, you know, uh, women who are good multitaskers have, can learn to be quite focused, and, and men who are uh, obsessively focused can learn not to be and can learn to, to do different things. We're also very plastic in that regard. And all of these things are are helpful in understanding, giving us a better understanding of 
of, of who and what we are in general and then particularly as the kind of self that we find ourselves thinking that we are. And that's, that's where this is a valuable insight that, that Peggy's having, is that uh, just simply seeing that the true nature of reality is, is not that world of, of fixed and predictable events unfolding that, that our minds try to make it into. Mm-hmm. And our minds try to make it into that for a very good reason. Uh, so it, it helps us a lot to, in, in managing in the world, in managing our lives. So it's a useful approach to take, but it's, uh, uh, it, it's not all that useful to become convinced that it really is that way and expect things to expect it to really work out in those terms. When we realize that it doesn't, then we can cut ourselves a lot of slack. And uh, that's an important thing to do. So, but back to what Peggy was talking about here. When you're meditating, the... What is the right way to do it? What is the? What are we really trying to do? Well, what you really want to remember, uh, the bottom line is that you're wanting to understand the way things really are, the way reality really is, and the way your mind really works. And so... Meditation is just getting to that place where instead of just the constant everything going at once, and that you can focus in enough to take some part of the present moment, some part of this reality, and put it in the kind of perspective where you can see what makes it up. You can see, you know, and it has these pretty constant components to it. There's some sensations and then there's the, uh, the things that your mind does when sensations arise. Your mind, of course, tries to take those sensations and organize them into an understandable cause of the sensations, some kind of a thing that is recognizable from the past so that you know how to react or not to react to it. And, of course, that how to react or not comes with a flavor of whether it's something that you like or don't like, and, and so forth. So when you can get to the point of just being with that, what's actually happening in the present moment ever with any object, the breath or anything, then that, that presents you with the opportunity to see things as they really are. And when you do, you see exact. You start to see exactly the things that you were talking about. And you can, if if you don't, if you don't find yourself frustrated with them, then you can just relax and, and have more of an equanimity towards it. And, and okay, now it's now it's starting to present it to present itself to me the way it really is. It's not that you are supposed to be in control of your mind and 
not have the kinds of thoughts and associations and reactions to the sensations that you do. It's that now you can see exactly how your mind is behaving and how and, and what it's behaving in response <coughs> to. That those sensations. Um, I told you, you know, you mentioned that I had told you that you could find probably uh, without too much difficulty about 12 different things that consistently appear in the course of the in-breath. And, uh, and you can, and, and you mentioned some of them, and you start doing that. You know, maybe you've only got up to four or five or six, you know, but whatever. It's, it's, it's not important. It, it, there's not a rule that says you have to find 12 things that consistently happen in every in-breath. It's that if you start looking to see if you can identify the different distinct sensations which repeat themselves in every in-breath or almost every in-breath, it's going to lead you to the discovery that what there is is just a constant flow of flux, of change. And even those distinct events that you are able to identify, these are just patterns in an unceasing flow that your mind has grabbed onto and says, ah, there's one, okay, there's there's when the air first hits my nose. Got that one. And and makes it into a a thing that's a nice, familiar thing that you can hold on to. Or the the warmth. Ah, it's warm, it's warm, it's warm. Good. Oh, there's another one, mind grasps onto that and then, oh well now it's not as warm as it was it's 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 just seeing on the one hand there is this flux which has no distinct parts it's it's continuous and on the other hand there is the mind that wants to take this continuous uninterrupted flow and chunk it up in in manageable pieces and so, you're, 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 you, what you're describing as a, as a perfect uh, meditation experience in which uh, insight is beginning to arise. And if you continue with that experience, and maybe with the kind of pointers that I've just given you, the insights will just become clearer. And what you're really looking for is, is that moment where instead of your mind struggling to understand it, it just kind of gives up and sees it. Well, yeah, of course, that's the way it is. So I shouldn't try to find 12 things. What you were saying was... Well, no, you shouldn't feel like you have to to succeed in finding 12 things. You should try to find 12 things or 8 things or, or 16 things or whatever just so that you can discover what happens when you do try that? I can't even think of 12 things. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm sorry. Make it four. <laughs> It'll serve the same purpose. Although, if it's too easy with four, make it six.
so it's interesting. We've had a couple of questions here that one having to do with the ability to focus the mind, and then the other one here having to do with uh, the way you discover that things really can't be pinned down in the, in the nice, simple way that you like them to. This, this is the, uh, in, in other words, we've been talking about the concentration aspect of meditation, and then the next question brought us around to the insight aspect, which is really, you know, the, the basic question that you might ask is, okay, so if I try to, if I practice becoming aware of my breath, what am I going to get out of this? What's it? What's in it for me to spend my time doing this? And, uh, of course, the obvious answer is that you're going to have a calm mind and uh, perhaps experience in the immediate present a certain degree of of inner peace and tranquility uh, if you succeed in doing that. But, and and it's nice to have that, but... uh, Really what we're after is getting to that place where we can begin to see uh, things as they really are. Because when we understand things as we really are, then we can, uh, we can begin to interact with the world that we live in and the experiences that arise in a way that's going to, going to be much more satisfying and rewarding to ourselves with much less frustration Difficulty. So, yeah. and of course, one of the things that you that, that uh, I, I I want to bring up something tonight. I'm not going to be able to talk too much longer because uh, my energy level is fading pretty quickly right now. But one of the things that I had. I, I want to initiate a new kind of uh, a new approach to discussing uh, the Dharma with you. And uh, we've had a lot of discussions about the Buddhist teaching that the the self that you think you are is an illusion. The, no self doctrine. No self or no soul. It's another way it's put. And uh, of course, a lot of this practice is helping us come to the place to recognize this truth about what we are. And in some of these discussions, too, the question has come up, well, if there's no self, what about reincarnation? And, uh, of course, if you don't have a self, then the self that you think you are obviously can't be reincarnated. And so I wanted to take these same these same very, very helpful and useful truths that are normally stated in a more negative way. You know, that you have no self. That 
uh, everything is impermanent. And uh, see if we start working with all exactly those same things, but in a more from a more positive perspective. And uh, I was going to call this soul creation. So what's, what we need to do is to come to a place of recognizing that we have no soul in the sense, and, and, and that has to be recognized uh, with a, a clear definition of whatever this soul or self is that we think we are, that uh, a definition of it so that we can clearly see what's wrong with the way we normally think of that. But then I want to move beyond that to taking the understanding that we get from that to being able to make ourselves into that which we would like to be. In other words, to create in yourself a reasonable facsimile of the kind of soul or self that... uh, if such a thing could exist, that you would like to be. Because that is also a very important part of the Dharma. To become the kind of person who has certain characteristics, who lives virtuously, who practices generosity and patience, who approaches their interactions with others through loving-kindness and compassion. A person who experiences no... A person who is free from the, the pain and dissatisfaction of constantly being a separate self in contrast to uh, a, a world of not-self and instead come to be uh, a happy being who is who experiences themselves as a harmonious part uh, or experience themselves as a part of a harmonious whole in which they uh, are interacting. So I'm too tired to go any further with this tonight. but uh, that is, that's the direction that I want to go in, in uh, our discussions in, in the future. Uh, I'd like you, between now and next week, to uh, think very seriously about the self that you think you are or that you wish that you were or in abstract terms, a self or a soul, uh, what characteristics it has. And I'll I'll give you the formal version of that just to take with you. Philosophically, psychologically, in other ways, if we analyze what it is that people refer to when they speak of their self or their soul, they expect that whatever that is, that it's unitary, that that 
there's only one that you have. You are a singular self or soul. That it is enduring, relatively permanent, whether you believe it is uh, eternal or whether it ceases to exist when the, when the body dies is irrelevant. Everyone who thinks in terms of a self or a soul, transitory or impermanent, they are quite certain that it's been the same self or soul from the time of their birth to the present moment and will be uh, either forevermore or, or until it comes to its end. So uh, it's a sort of permanence, enduringness. I call it enduringness rather than permanence or eternal soul because I know that some people who are already past the expectation that they're going to have eternal uh, existence as a self. But then the other most deeply, the most deeply defining characteristic of a self or soul of all is the sense of separateness, of somehow being separate from and independent of everything that's not self, which of course brings this great burden of free will and responsibility for our action. So, so these would be three kind of abstract characteristics, the uh, unity or singularity, the uh, uh, permanence or, or relative enduring quality or continuity of the self or soul, and then separateness. And then in terms of function, when people think of a self or soul, it's two functions. That the self or soul is the, the that which experiences things, right? That to whom things happens. The, the, the seer, the feeler, the thinker, and so forth. And then, uh, then the other part of it is that uh, the function of a self or soul as we experience it is as the one who commits actions, who, make, who formulates intentions, who is the doer. So there's the, the experiencer and the doer. So if you could just think about these between now and next week. And then we could talk about them in terms of uh, both in what sense when you look for that, you don't find it, but also in the sense that what, what capacity do we have to, uh, in a sense, create a soul or a self through our practice? Okay. So I think that's all I'm up to tonight. So thank you very much. See you next week.